hey, in this episode, there's some very frank discussion of sex. Yeah, stand-up is it's really fun. You just find my anxiety. I'm having, like, the time of my life. I feel like I'm going out every night. I'm, like, partying. I'm making a ton of new friends. You know, like, for years I thought I was an extrovert. Um, I did later learn I was an alcoholic, but, you know, it's <laughs> easy. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. This episode is about dating and drinking, and it's about having multiple mental health issues and trying to figure out which ones are symptoms of other ones. Ginny Hogan is a comedian and writer. Her new book, a collection of essays, is called I'm More Dateable Than a Plate of Refried Beans. It's mostly about dating, being single, life on dating apps. She posts a picture of a plate of refried beans on her profile at one point on one of the apps just to see how she'll stack up next to the beans. Jenny's writing has appeared in The New Yorker, McSweeney's, The Atlantic, lots of places. Here's some more of Ginny on stage from her stand-up hour titled, I Finished My Twenties and All I Got Was This Stupid Sobriety. I'm a vegan. Um, I knew that you guys knew that there was something wrong with me. I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a vegan because I do fundamentally believe in my core that food should be expensive. Uh, <laughs> sorry, this is touchy for an LA audience. Um, I, uh, I was on a raw vegan smoothie bar the other day, and Katie Holmes comes in. You guys all know Katie Holmes, right? She was married to Tom Cruise. That's literally her only thing. And, uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm a feminist. And Katie Holmes was an actress. She. Uh, Played a Scientologist for a while. Anyway, <laughs> Katie Holmes comes in and she orders three of the exact same kind of smoothie. She sips all three of them and then she throws two of them away. <laughs> yeah, even though they all taste exactly the same. Isn't that wild? <laughs> like, can you imagine being so crazy that you dig through the trash for Katie Holmes's rejected smoothies? <laughs> Seriously, I could not taste the difference. You know? <laughs> I asked Jenny what mental health obstacles she has dealt with. Um, I have a lot. I mean, I always feel like there's kind of like one, one that's on top. Basically I'm a recovering alcoholic and I have taken a lot of pride in my recovery from that, which is nice. But, um, I do feel like at some point, once I kind of got into the recovery, other issues sort of started to crop up. So I, I definitely have a really bad anxiety problem. And without alcohol, the anxiety is kind of like free to go nuts. Basically, I can get very depressed. I'd say I probably gear more towards anxiety than depression. And then I haven't, I've had an eating disorder for a very long time. I, it's like so strange to talk about because no one ever talks about having an eating disorder, like in the present, you know, it always feels like something you're supposed to talk about in the past. And it used to feel kind of like an emergency, the kind of eating disorder, because I couldn't keep food down and was very physically ill. And it is no longer in that emergency state. But I would not say that I'm like 100% recovered from it. And in times of anxiety, I can very much react via like getting obsessive about diet or exercise. And then I, I have ADD which I don't even think of as a mental health problem because it doesn't, I don't know. I mean, I know it is, I know it is, but it just like, 
it doesn't so much bother me as it, or it doesn't feel like a thing I'm going to like solve necessarily. It feels like it's just the way my brain works, which I, I know that you could, someone could say about some of the other issues. I guess my personal relationship to ADD is that I'm not like, uh, how do I get, how do I get past my ADD? Whereas with like depression, anxiety, definitely substance abuse. Yeah. I'm all, yeah. I'm trying to put them in the rear view mirror if, yeah. if at all, to whatever extent possible. How far back do these things go? How far back does, does the anxiety go? for instance? I definitely was a very anxious child. When I was little, I wouldn't sleep in my room. I would sleep like on the floor in the hallway because I was very scared of an intruder. But I don't know if that's, I don't have kids myself. So I don't know if that's like normal kid behavior. I got put on antidepressants when I was 16. And in part, it was because I had such a bad eating disorder. And the antidepressants helped with that. But I wouldn't have I think my, the first thing that kind of came to light was having an eating disorder. And I was a teenage girl and I felt like half the other girls I knew had eating disorders. It felt like I wouldn't have identified it as a symptom of depression or a symptom of anxiety. I, I, I would have thought of it more as like just a thing I'm passing through as a teenager. And then I took Zoloft for that. The Zoloft helped with depression and anxiety. I probably went off the Zoloft when I was like 19 or 20. And then I think my eating disorder, like super, super, super kind of got to its worst point in college and like my junior year. And there was like one, I was like pretty close to dropping out. I couldn't, I would just like stay up all night binging and purging. And then, and then like, couldn't really be functional during the day, but was not sleeping at all. And a doctor put me on ADHD medication. And then it, I don't even think that's like, a, a recommended thing to do, you know, like, it's like very weird. Like, I don't think ADD medication is good for treating eating disorders. But when I described it to her, she was like, let's give this a try. And it honestly, like it turned my life around. Like at first I had to take Ambien too, to go to sleep, but I only needed that for like two weeks. And then I was on a, like a low dose of Adderall and I, I stopped binging and purging. I had a normal sleep schedule. I finished college. I went off Adderall I'll go through periods of like feeling like I should use it. I've been on Wellbutrin too. And, and I, I do feel like it helps me, but I, because I'm not in like the same kind of crisis that I was in college, I don't really use it regularly, but anyway, that's a little bit about like, I guess I haven't even really gotten to any of the drinking. (laughs) No, we'll get to the drinking. Was, was the, the eating disorder, was that mostly bulimia then? Yeah, that was what it was in college and high school. And that was kind of, it's like very, I feel like it's very easy when someone is, you know, a child or in college, also you're sort of under the, under the guidance of the people in your, like the RAs in your dorm. If you're still kind of under someone's care, it's very easy to like point to that as a behavior. That's like, okay, we need to fix that. So like in high school, like one of my teachers knew and was like, okay, well, you need to go to a therapist. And like in college, the same thing, one of my RAs knew. And I have not been bulimic in many years, but I think the behaviors that I have now are less like for one thing, I'm a you know fully fledged adult and it is more my my responsibility to kind of seek the treatment that I want for them. But also it's less easy to like point exactly to like what exactly the thing is. It's, you know, I can be a little bit restrictive about food. I think that that's common. And then it is a question of like how restrictive am I being? Is it is it spinning out of control? Do I feel in control of it? And that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So then when did the drinking come along? Yeah. So I started, I mean, I'm so type A and I was even more type A in high school and college. And I really didn't drink a lot because I was, for one thing, I was obsessed with my weight. And I was like very scared that I would gain weight if I drank a lot in college. And then 
I was also obsessed with doing homework, I guess. But it, when I moved to San Francisco at age 23, I had like a nine to five at a tech startup and it was just like drinking culture. And it was like the first time I was like, oh, I can like kick back and like, I can actually enjoy my evenings. That was my first time really like relaxing. At first it was relaxing and it was like a, you know, normal amount to be drinking. If there is, you know, whatever. It wasn't a, again, not like a, a huge amount. And then when I started doing stand-up, I think it really started to spin out of control. I quit drinking after I've been doing stand-up for like three years, but like, it's just, I was at bars all the time and it felt productive basically because drinking kind of like kept me out later, which meant I was doing more stand-up and I was being paid in drink tickets a lot of the time. So I felt like that was my only way to be like compensated. It was just like, there were a lot of things going on. Also, I didn't have a day job anymore. And um, it just like really slowly kind of started to to build. So you started the drinking, the, the heavier drinking while you had the job and then the comedy started to take off and then the drinking took off with the comedy. Um, I would say that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. yeah. So when did the comedy start? Which isn't strictly a mental illness, but we could talk about it. I at think the same time. being really into stand up is a little bit of a mental illness. A I would say. <laughs> it's disordered anyway, we could say. Yeah. <laughs> I started doing stand up when I was 25. I was living in San Francisco. And it was like, I mean, the first year I did stand up was like the most fun I'd ever had. I'm, I'm like an, I guess at the time was very shy and um, self conscious. And no one ever like told me I should do stand up. I, I don't know. I just got the idea into my head that I was funny. And then I, I ran with it. And it was like such a blast. It was like my first time in my life meeting people who weren't like, because I had thought San Francisco was so techie and sort of sanitized. And it was like, so many more interesting kinds of people, I guess that I met. So you're doing the open mics? I'm doing open mics in San Francisco for like a year. And then I moved to New York. And I move in with my parents in New York, and that's when I start drinking like a ton. Because mm. I quit my tech job. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So the with the drinking, do you have any theories as to if any of the things you were dealing with led to the other things? Like, was the drinking a product of the anxiety? Was it? A, were they both a product of the depression or, or something else? Yeah. I mean, I love to theorize about myself. So I do have a lot of theories about this. Okay. Well, in terms of depression, I would say that my depression is maybe like a, like it kind of comes and goes. It's a little bit less present. The anxiety definitely led to the drinking. And I actually like to a certain extent think that having, I mean, yeah, the anxiety led to the drinking because I didn't ever learn any other way to like shut my brain off. And I still don't really have one. Like, I mean, I kind of do, but I can go through periods of feeling just I'm completely wired and super on for days on end, even if I'm like, and I, I'm careful about, I mean, I drink a lot of coffee, but if I sense myself getting too wired, I cut it out. Like I can be careful about stimulants and still feel like extremely wired. And yeah, so I think that the anxiety led to the drinking. And and I think to a certain extent, actually, I had been so afraid that I was going to like gain weight if I drank too much in college. And then once I started drinking regularly, it felt kind of easier to manage. For one thing, I had this really specific drunk habit, which is that I would like walk around for hours in the middle of the night. Um, In in San Francisco or New York? In San Francisco and New York. Those are my two big drinking places. Um, So walk around, drink a lot, walk around major cities in the middle of the night. Yeah, it was not safe. And smoke cigarettes. I smoke. I, I don't. I think I quit smoking before I moved to New York. But I, I have like so many nights in San Francisco. I was like walking around the middle of the night smoking cigarettes, and I would go inside these like small bodegas and get the individual size Sutter homes, 
and and like a pack of cigarettes and just like wander around for hours. And it was actually like, to be honest, it was relatively good exercise. <laughs> like I would not describe it as like a healthy behavior, but I had like a Fitbit and I could, there were days where I was talking like 30,000 steps. Like I would wake up the next morning and be like, last night was awesome. I did like 30,000 steps. <laughs> Remember when I roamed the streets smoking and drinking wine? <laughs> yeah. Um, I should make a workout video. Right. But anyway, I had this like fear that if I started drinking regularly, I would gain weight and that. I didn't, that didn't happen. And so I was like, this is great. <laughs> I can, I can do this all the time. And I did. So yeah, that was kind of how they all kind of played together. Did you, I mean, you're, you're drinking little individual setter homes as you're walking around in the middle of the night and you're, you're clearly a, a smart person who knows yourself pretty well. Did, did any yellow or red flags show up of like, this is, this is a kind of odd behavior. You know, what's interesting is like, I knew that smoking cigarettes was really bad and I only did it when I was drunk. And I, that was kind of like, it was almost good that I was scared of it because I feel like I, that was like a good red flag for me to be like, I should try to avoid situations in which I want to smoke cigarettes because I know that smoking cigarettes is really bad. And, you know, I mean, I think like someone who, uh, I think people with addiction kind of can tell you that like in its earlier stages, like you'll sort of like tie a quitting date to some like arbitrary moment in time. So like, I knew that I couldn't keep going like this forever, but I was like, when I quit my job, I'm going to take a month off. And in that month, I'm totally going to reset and I'm not even going to want to drink anymore. And of course, you know, that happened. I took the month off and I kept drinking or like later on, I'd be like, well, I'm just, I I need to get through this really stressful period of time. And then I'm going to stop this. So like, I never really felt like it was a sustainable habit, but I always felt like there was like a moment in the future when I could quit. And, and to be honest, I did quit drinking via like one of those big life changes. Like I, I had been saying like, I'm going to move out of New York and I can quit drinking when I move out of New York. And then I moved to LA and from there I did quit drinking. Okay. So it was San Francisco, then New York, then LA. Yeah. 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 What made you quit drinking when you got to LA? Well, I think it's like kind of nice to, um, okay. Do you, I, you know how like people will say like, oh, it's good to like buy, you know, an expensive gym membership and then you'll feel guilted into going. I think for me, it was like, oh, it's good to like, if I tell myself that moving to LA is when I'm going to quit drinking, I actually have to do it because I'm doing this like crazy thing. You know, like it's really expensive. It's not a logical choice. I don't know how to drive. So I need to, it needs to actually work because like, if this doesn't work, then like what is going to work, you know? And I also did kind of take like a month off then I I had like a very um, non-intensive job that I did remotely. But other than that, I like was in my new apartment in LA. I didn't know anyone. And I just like, that was the time when I kind of like got, I would say I got spiritual (laughs) Uh for a little bit. I sort of like re-envisioned my life. And I think that that was an important part of being in a new city was I could no longer really imagine putting drinking in the life I was leading in New York. There were just, there were too many complications. All my friends drank a lot. Like everything reminded me of times I had been drunk. Like I, I grew up in New York. I've been there for so many years. Like I, I just needed to be able to see my life in a whole new way. And that happened when I moved to LA. Is that why you moved to LA to try to change things? I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's another good, I'm a standup comedian and I'm interested in the entertainment industry in general. So it's kind of an easy move or like an obvious move, I guess, if you don't want to be in New York, I just like wanted a different life. And I think I just felt like I was never going to get that if I didn't like make some big, bold change. How long have you been in LA? I actually, I live in New York again. Oh, you live in New York? Okay. <laughs> I moved back to New York a couple months ago. Um, Cause my sister had kids and I'm very obsessed with them. 
I actually, I kind of move a lot. Um, I'm trying yeah. not to, too much, but I don't know. how long were you in LA? I was in LA like two and a half years. Okay. Okay. How's it going with those temptations of, about drinking now that you're back in New York? I think it's fine because or it's been time just because I'm so used to being sober. Like I was steady in my sobriety by the time I moved, moved back here. But I mean, there are still like, I'll walk past the bar and be like, Oh, I remember like a happy time I had there, but the real clincher of the city, I don't know if clincher is the right word. Going back to San Francisco is, is hard because San Francisco is not that big of a city. And because I was a drunk walker, there are whole neighborhoods where I'm like, I walked every single block of this in the middle of the night drunk. And like, and when I say I was like walking around in the middle of the night, like I was really enjoying myself. Like I was like listening to music and kind of like fantasizing and just like, I was, I wasn't forcing myself to do it. It was like the happiest time of my week. So like, if I find myself on one of these blocks in San Francisco, I'm like, I had like fun times here by myself drunk in the middle of the night. I, I, I'm still uh, <laughs> st- stuck on this idea. Like now, now that you've added headphones, I'm even more retroactively terrified for you. Like yeah. that, that's all sorts of really terrible things could happen to you. And I got, there was one night where I got, this is so crazy. And this was like so far before I quit drinking or even thought I had a drinking problem, but I got my phone stolen. It got like someone grabbed it out of my hand and I wasn't too bugged by it, but I I just wanted to continue drinking and walking. So I went into my apartment and I got my iPad and I plugged my headphones into my iPad. So then I was like walking around with my iPad and then I got my iPad stolen. And I think it was the same guy, to be honest. I think he was like, who's this dumb drunk girl? I can steal all her electronics. You're bringing out a a laptop and then a desktop computer in order. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely not safe. I have had more dangerous drunk experiences, but they were not when I was walking around drunk, even though I know it's not safe. And it's also like, honestly, drunk walking is just dangerous in terms of literally like getting hit by a car. Like it's like, there are all the the things that you think about, like getting, you know, like physically, there's also just like, you're not, you need to be somewhat aware to just be walking around, you know? Yeah. Well, was it, and I'm sorry to fixate so much on this middle of the night walking around, but I do find it uh, grimly fascinating. Did you just want to drink so much that that overrode all the other instincts of like, this is a dangerous, self-destructive thing to do. Yes. And I was energized. Also, when I was doing stand-up, I started like, I feel like I had like a Red Bull almost every night to do stand-up. And so I kind of needed like some sort of like come down, but the alcohol made me feel very energized. And I just, yeah, I just felt like I had a lot of energy. I think also like, I mean, I would do it for hours and hours. And, and I, what you asked earlier about like, if there were red flags going off, I kind of think there were. And I feel like in part, like each time I was like, this might be the last time I get to do this. So I better spend hours on it. You know, no, it was not. I knew that it wasn't like great, but, but I also did kind of feel like it was like a better, I preferred to socialize. I'm pretty introverted. And it was just so fun for me that I wanted to like get every like last, just like kind of hang on to every last minute of it. Yeah. Doing stand-up is often compared to getting high or, you know, people say it's such a high, it's such a rush being up there. Is that still the case with you now that now that you're not drinking? Like, do you get a different sort of high or do you get high at all from doing stand-up? I get, I, I, I feel a rush when I do it. It's not as fun. I think like the, some of the like highest highs were like being drunk and having a really good set. And I don't get that anymore. I always feel very relieved when the sets are over now. Yeah, I don't, I I would not say that I get the same rush, but it can still be really, really fun for sure. 
Yeah, yeah. So you've been sober for a while. Has that had an effect on on the uh, anxiety in particular? I mean, I know that my anxiety is lower and I, I know it because I can like feel it. And also because, um, it is like a, just alcohol makes anxiety worse. If I like am in touch with how I'm feeling and I take the time to assess it, like on a day-to-day level, I know that my anxiety is, is lower. The issue is that when I get extremely anxious now, I never used to have to deal with the full consequences of that because I used to always, anytime I was like close to having a panic attack, I would drink. So like times that it's like, if I'm waiting on some news or something, like I would always have been drinking and now I do that sober. And that's a very intense experience that feels a lot more intense than any of the anxiety I faced when I was drinking. But overall, I know that my anxiety is, is like lower. Like, I mean, at first I felt like sobriety, like made the days better and the nights worse. And like, now I do kind of feel like it makes everything better, but like, I can still get very anxious. What do you do now to treat the the anxiety and, and any of the depression that's still there? Some of the eating disorder thought patterns that are still there? Is it meds? Is it therapy? I am on Wellbutrin and I was on Zoloft until recently, but I was on a low dose and I just wanted to see what it was like to wean off it. And then therapy, I am in between therapists. I had a bad, I don't know. I've had bad experiences with therapists where I felt like they were like, almost making things worse. One of my unpopular opinions, I guess, is like, I don't, I don't like when therapy is held up as like the ultimate thing, basically, that kind of works for everything. Like, I think that there, I think that it might not be the right solution for me, although I do want to get a different therapist, but I have been going to AA a lot more recently, even though I would not say that I have the urge to drink, but honestly, like in AA, a lot of people don't talk about drinking. Like a lot of people are talking about other substances and it is like, you can really talk about whatever you want. Like I, I just went one time and I just sort of described like how my mood was just in a horrible, horrible place. And then I realized the next day that I had just been PMSing and like, I went to AA and complained about PMSing, but like you can talk about anything. So I'll go to that. And it's also nice to only, you only have to share like a little bit and then other people share. Uh, And you just, there's like a communal feeling. Ginny mentioned the use of ADHD medication for eating disorders. And yes, that is a thing. I can't say how commonly it's prescribed, but there has been fairly recent research that indicates meds like Vyvanse could be effective for eating disorders. Just ahead, dating can be wonderfully exciting and horribly nerve-wracking. Might be why meeting up for drinks is such a common thing. But how is dating different when you're in recovery? Here's more of Ginny's stand-up as we go to break. Somewhere around the time when I'm like 24, I learned the secret to making dating more bearable, um, which is to get really drunk. And uh, that's, this is when I started drinking every night, and it incidentally coincided with um, the time in my life when I started having a lot of casual sex. Um, so I do identify as a slut, um, which does mean that any and all criticism of me does technically count as slut shaming. Okay, please keep that in mind if you have feedback on the set. Um, I, I slept around a lot more when I was drinking. Like my friend asked me one time if I look back on guys I used to sleep with when I was drinking and realize that they were losers, and I was like, no, I knew it at the time. <laughs> Come on, I was drunk. I wasn't deaf, you know. <laughs> It's not like I missed hearing that man ask me why women pee sitting down. <laughs> um, but my views on sex, they have a 
evolved a little bit, you know. Like I have a third date tomorrow and I kind of decide if I should sleep with him. I mean, to be fair, I already have twice, but. <laughs> Talking with Ginny Hogan, in her stand-up and in her new book, she finds a lot of material in the subject of dating. What is it about that topic area that you found so much material in, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it for so long, and I, I feel like I consider myself mostly single, and I don't just mean like at this moment in time, like just in my life, and I, you know, I think it's possible I could be in like a long-term relationship, but like even when I'm in a relationship and even if it's been like six months or a year, it still doesn't feel like my natural setting basically. And because I'm mostly single, I have dated so many people and I've had like so many experiences. And also like I have kind of low standards. The benefit of that is that like you get a lot of different experiences if you have no standards. So that has really helped me to, I just like write about it because I have so much experience in the area, in the field, I guess it's universal you know, like everybody has thoughts on dating, whether it's gone well for them, not gone well. Um, it always feels timely. And there's just like so much that's so strange about the way we date that it feels like a constant like well of information. Do you find pressure from friends, family, society to pick the right person to you know find someone and settle down? Not really. I, I think I'm, I've like inoculated myself in a very liberal level. Um, so, and my, my older sister has children, so that is nice. Like I don't get pressure from my parents and yeah, I feel like she like took one for the team with that one. Um, and her kids are so great. It's really fun. So, and also I've never, I've had like serious relationships where they met my parents, but I don't think I I've ever had like one boyfriend, my parents knew really well and was so, were so interested in that. They were like, Oh my God, you got to marry him. And, and I think that my friend group is I'm 31. And I think that we are very by and large, like we sort of reject the traditional ideas of like, it's the thing you have to do. And by the time you're in your early thirties, you should be like looking for a way to settle down. Like I do have friends who are married with children, but I also have friends who have like absolutely no urgency about it. And I think that that's sort of maybe not, maybe that's like a more modern development. Like I'm wondering if like a generation ago, you could just be 31 and like not really feel feel rushed at all. I, I guess Sex in the City is at this point the original almost a generation ago and they're in their mid thirties. And, you know, very, I think they, one of the things I love about Sex in the City is that each of the characters do have like a different perspective and like Charlotte is definitely in a rush to get married, but like, I don't think there's anyone who's like, you should have settled down by now if you want to, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When you're dating and you, you still go out on dates, I imagine you still are meeting people. I'm like taking a break. Taking Actually, a break from that. I have a date this weekend. <laughs> I'm taking a break from dating apps. I recently got out of a short-term relationship that just made me feel bad, I guess. And um, because I'm not looking for a long-term relationship, my only like requirement for someone I'm dating, it doesn't have to be someone I can like see a future with. It just has to be someone who doesn't make me feel bad in the present. Mm -hmm. And he did not um, fit that, which is weird because actually he's someone I could see a future with just because I think that our lifestyles sort of align. Like, I think that we kind of would want to live in similar ways, but um, he just, yeah, he made me feel bad. I, but I am going out with someone, to be honest, who asked me out on Twitter, but which I don't normally do. <laughs> 
but I, I but I also don't never do it, you know. <laughs> do they slide into your DMs as they say? Yes, I do something weird where sometimes I'll ask people to DM me and he um he did. Okay. Okay. When you you know, you, you've written this book that's about dating and about the the highs and lows, a lot of the lows of dating. When you are in that situation, are you like reading it to say, okay, is this this might be a relationship. This might just be a fun thing to do. This might be material that I write about. This is something that I can observe as a writer and evaluate in that context. Like, is, is there kind of a sorting process? Yeah. I mean, I never am using dates for material. I just think that it's not a very efficient way to get material. And it's not, it's not fair to the other person, although that is, to be honest, less of a concern of mine. But like, I can kind of come up with like, I, I think about dating so much that I can generate material just from my own weird thought pattern. So, but when I'm out with someone, I think like I used to really be evaluating, like, could I see a future with them? And now it's like, do I feel good here on the date? Does it feel worth my time to have this feeling again? And do I want to sleep with them? Yeah. And that that's, that's the process. Yeah. That's, that's it really. And like, I'm not an extremely horny person and I, even if I'm physically attracted to someone, I have to like think they're fun to hang out with for it to really be worth it for me to sleep with them. Also, because I'm sober, like I used to have like a lot more sex when I was drinking a lot. And like now it's, yeah, just, I just do it less often. What strikes you as, as funny about dating? I think it's funny that it's like a full negotiation from the moment that you start dating, you know, like there's like, it's ostensibly supposed to be about like finding someone you really connect with who you can like super enjoy their company potentially for many, many years. But it is like a negotiation almost from day one. It's like, who can be the person to text last? Like who can be the person to like want the relationship less and like be less down to commit or whatever. Um, I find it so funny, but also frustrating when men, and not just to like me, but just kind of to the uh, straight men are like, I don't want something complicated, but instead what they lay out is like the most complicated thing in the world, because it's like, we're not going to be in an official relationship. Like you do have to come to this birthday party with me, but like, I'll meet your closest friends, but I'm not going to be like your family. And it's just like very, like, there are so many more rules in that than in just like being committed basically. So I think the idea of like trying to negotiate something that's supposed to be about like love and like how well someone understands you and and validates you and cares about you, like is so funny to me. What do you think's behind that? What do you think's behind the, the structure and the everything that's in place around the rituals that are around this thing and all the complicated self-imposed rules? Why do you think people do that? I think like, so I am fascinated by like, and I should clarify, I'm talk- for most of what I've said, probably about men and dating, I'm talking about straight men. I am fascinated by men feeling like their freedom is being taken away. And I don't want to like go on a tangent complaining about men, but in the specific realm of dating, they seem so obsessed with trying to hold on to their freedom. And I'm like very confused about what it is, what kind of freedom they would be losing in a relationship. Because like, I don't, sometimes it's like, do you want to play video games all day? And you think I'm going to stop you? Like, I feel like they have this idea that like, once they have a girlfriend, she's going to stop them from like doing the things they want to do. And I understand not wanting to be monogamous sexually, that part I get, but I also have like dated a lot of guys and we were monogamous only by default because 
they're not, I, I date like nerdy guys. They're not like smooth operators. They don't have an easy <laughs> time getting women to go to bed with them. And like, and they still like, and so it's not about sexual monogamy. It's about like, they feel like if they commit to a relationship with me, they're like giving up something like ineffable. And I also am so annoyed because it's like, if you're in a relationship with someone, you can end that relationship at any moment. Honestly, same with like marriage too. I get that it's a little bit more paperwork. I get that moving out of a house is harder, but I, okay. So I've never lived with a, with a partner. And like, I think all the steps after living with someone should require like a lot of deliberation, living with someone onward, because those are harder to untangle, but like the constant negotiation about like what we're going to call ourselves and like, are we boyfriend, girlfriend, just, and I don't even really do it anymore in part because I'm just tired of it. But Mm -hmm. like, it just, it always felt so weird to me because I, I just could never get someone to like nail down exactly what part of their freedom they were losing in being in a, in a relationship that like the relationship only exists because we have both decided that it does like they could end it at any time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if there's a motorcycle and you're not allowing them to go right on their motorcycle, I think right, that's what it right. refers to. I've never dated someone cool enough to have a motorcycle. <laughs> You mentioned that you were, that you dated more, that you were a lot more sexually active when you were drinking. Were you looking to fill something in your life? Like, was it, it's kind of a cliche, I suppose, but was that part of it that there was a part of you missing that you were looking to fill up with dudes? I mean, I think that that definitely is true, but like logistically, it also was just a lot easier to have sex when I was drinking because like it can be so awkward to like initiate the topic of sex. And like, I I've done it sober and it is weird. And like guys have done it sober and I can tell that they think it's weird. And like it being the initiating or it being the sex, the initiating and honestly, the sex also like you initiate sex, I guess, by asking someone to come over or like inviting themselves over to your house. And like when I was drinking, it was like, if a guy invited me over, I would go over. And then within like probably seven minutes we were like fully fornicating but I've had guys like I've been on sober dates and the guy invites me over and I go over and even though it's very clear that he invited me over for sex it's still so awkward and weird that we just talk for like two hours and then I'm tired and I leave and like at this point in my sobriety I know that like I can't really be like a casual smooth operator around sex I have to just bring it up as a conversation topic because like which is good. Like it is good to talk about sex before you do it, but I have to like, just be like, do you want to have sex? Like, and should we start now? You know, because Uh I really can't be like, I have no, like, it's harder to be coy when you're sober. Right. Right. It's the, the meat cute isn't really uh, very time efficient, I suppose. Yeah. 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 Exactly. It's interesting. I I watched your, your hour of stand up, and a lot of it's about sex or, you know, there's big parts of it are about sex and it's interesting to me that you that you have all this material at a time where you're not dating as much and you're you're not as active. I mean, is it kind of a journalism sort of thing where like, you know, I've I've been out in the, you know, in the field and now I can write about it? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of those stand-up jokes literally are old. Like I've been doing stand-up for like five years now, and like to fill out an hour, like I have jokes from every year that I did stand-up in that set. I still think of new dating jokes or I'll think of like new tags for old jokes, even when I'm not doing as much. Also, like I'm still interacting with men in a flirty way, like just existing in the world. So I still kind of get new ideas from that. But like, what's weird is that, so like I'm, I'm, as I mentioned, usually single, I am sometimes in relationships. And when I am, it's like, I'll think of like a small number of jokes about relationships. And then 
when I put together a stand-up hour, like I condensed those into just like making it seem like it was just like one or two relationships because um, I, I guess I would say I've actually been in a lot of relationships. They've just all been like somewhat short-lived. Yeah, yeah. We started this interview talking about kind of this set of menu items. You know, you've had the a lot of anxiety. You've had some depression. Uh, there's been some eating disorders. There's been a substance use disorder. How are you today with all those things? So like relative to the last six months right now, I'm in a bad spot, but like relative to the last like 10 years right now, I'm in like a good spot. If that makes sense. Like I'm in like a local, I'm in a local min. my, well, I don't drink at all. Uh, and I don't do any drugs. Like I, I just never liked smoking weed. And at some point I decided I was just going to like officially not do it. And then the other drugs I'm, I'm like, honestly very scared of. So I'm drug free, which is good. Although I am considering like giving up coffee, which like doesn't sound like a lot, but it would kind of require me to like rethink my lifestyle a little bit, but my depression's okay. My anxiety is very bad. I've been having a lot of trouble sleeping. It's not good. Um, I don't know why, because I, I was on, I was traveling a lot and I had a lot of work things up until like a week ago. And so then I knew why I was stressed and not sleeping, but those things are over and I'm still feeling very stressed. And then the eating stuff is also like very, you know, stable, like not getting worse, but definitely like there are times where I'm like, I don't know if I want to live my, like, am I going to live like this forever? You know, like, am I going to be, cause like the, when I get stressed, I'll just get like very obsessive about, about what I eat. And I would like to, um, to not have that in my life. Basically it's hard because like, I once read this woman's book and she said that like, when she kind of started working on herself she did things in the order of like what was killing her fastest and like so first she quit drinking and then like I think she used Ambien and I don't at this point I don't have one thing that I think is killing me like my eating habits are actually not weird it's really like the way I think about it at times when I was kind of doing worse the path forward was easier you know and now that now it's not and that's harder yeah I have a friend who had a a big problem with binging and purging when she was younger. And she said that the, the, the hard part of it later is that if she had a problem with alcohol, she could cut out alcohol. But if you've got a problem with food, you still have to keep eating food. It's like in order to be alive, you have to always have a couple of martinis a day. Does that complicate things because you have to calibrate it so much on an ongoing basis? Yeah. And I like, I'm one of the few people I think who's really sees the appeal of like Soylent. Like if, if I could just take a pill in the morning, that was all my vitamins and then not have to eat and not get hungry. Like I would do that. I'm not, I'm like, I have 0% like foodie in me. Like I don't, I, I know when things taste good, but like, because food is so kind of emotionally str- like, you know, stressful for me, I, I can't really ever just like purely enjoy it. That is a, yeah, I mean, it is very difficult that it, and, and like, it's also hard to have a problem with something that everyone finds so pleasurable. It like makes me feel sort of it, like broken in a unique way, even though I know that I know that it's a way more common problem than people talk about. I think, I think part of why I, I don't talk about it that much is I associate it as like a problem for teenagers. And that's really not the truth. And like, I honestly, I, I think that people should be more open about problems with food because then it would be like less stigmatized. And and I think like, but anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm drifting from your question. One of my issues with eating is I'll kind of decide at the start of the day, what I'm going to eat and at what intervals. And then I, I'm not super flexible about it. So like, I can't really go out to dinner on the fly. 
you know, like I, if I get invited out, I need to know, and I can go out to dinner, but I just need to know like the day before, basically, because it dictates what I'll eat for breakfast. And so like those kind of like logistical challenges that like, it's not, you know, it doesn't make me dysfunctional. I'm socially able to see people and go out to meals with them, but like I, it kind of requires more planning and I can't really do any, do it like super sporadically. I should mention Soylent is a sponsor of our show. I no did not, I did not know Ginny was going to bring up Soylent and she did not know that they were a sponsor <laughs> of the show. You've written in some pieces that have gone pretty viral about self-care and I'm wondering uh, about where you come down on kind of separating out and managing the idea of self-care and self-management and, and self-regulation, especially in response to, to what you've written. Yeah. I mean, I think self-care can be stressful in and of itself. Like if you're doing enough to take care of yourself and it's just another thing to fail at basically. Um, and I, I think that's part of why I had a hard time accepting that I didn't like my therapist is that I was, and I, I didn't like my last like four therapists. And it was like, I was just like, am I doing enough if I'm not in therapy? So I, I wrote a piece called self-care conundrums. That's about like all the different ways that self-care can conflict with each other. And it is a satire piece, but it came from like a very real place of like, should I journal or should I go to sleep? You know, like, it's like, am I doing enough? Like, should I be trying to save money or should I go to Reiki because it's going to help my mental health and that's like more important or whatever. I don't know. Like they're just like all these conflicting um, ways to care for yourself. And I think in food in particular, it's like some advice will be like, just take care of yourself by eating what your body is asking for and not worrying too much. And then other advice is like, you're going to feel mentally better if you don't eat gluten and eat a lot of like fruits and vegetables. And like, it's just really, it all conflicts with each other. So it in itself becomes stressful. Last question about, it's about eating. Is it like a, a symbol of control in your life or is it a way of gaining control of a small part of your life when you know life is chaos and having some mental disorders is also chaos that you can say, okay, I can, I can grab onto this and I can, I can control this and therefore I can control other things. Um, yeah, totally. And, and times when I feel not in control, I want to control that more. And like, I mean, at the start of the pandemic, definitely, I felt very obsessive about food. And also I was kind of like left to my own devices because normally like having to eat in front of people means that I'll need to, you know, like I, I can't exactly limit things in the exact precise way I want. And that was no longer an issue. So that was very stressful. Um, I was like, yeah, it, it did give me like a sense of control. I mean, one thing I'm like trying to sort of come to peace with is that like, you can control what you eat, but you actually can't really control your body. And like to just sort of accept it's just going to change. And it's not even the healthiest way of looking at it. Cause I'm like, well, at least, you know, at the very least I can control what I eat, which like I shouldn't really need to be doing anyway, but like to just kind of accept that the outcome is sort of out of my control. Yeah. Yeah. The book is I'm more dateable than a plate of refried beans. You can read any eating meaning into that title that you wish the, the idea the idea of dating food we didn't even get into the kind of psychological symbolic layers of that but we can leave that to people's imaginations i think jenny hogan thank you so much thanks so much for having me this was so fun We have Ginny Hogan's hour-long stand-up special on our show page. She's on Twitter at Ginny Hogan, followed by a single tiny underscore. Laura House just ahead.
Hi, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. And the three of us host The Flophouse. It's a podcast where we watch a new bad movie and then we talk about it. Dan, you say it's hosted by the three of us. We've had a lot of great guest co-hosts like Gillian Flynn, Jamel Bowie, John Hodgman, Jessica Williams, Wyatt Cenac, Joe Bob Briggs, Josh Gondelman, Roman Mars. Yeah, and you said new movies, but what about the time we did Meatballs 2? Okay, okay, yeah, sometimes we do older movies and sometimes we have guests, but mostly it's about us talking about like recent bad movies. And don't forget about the ones where I made you do a role-playing game where you played cartoon dogs. All right, yeah. But... Shouldn't a promo be a really simple explanation about what our show's about? So what's the show about, Dan? What's it about? <laughs> what's it about? It's about friendship, all right? It's about our friendship and how we love each other. The Flophouse. It's a podcast mostly about bad movies on Maximum Fun. Do you sometimes wonder whatever happened to the kids at your school who really loved Star Trek? You might remember a kid like me, the one who read the Star Trek novels and built starship models. I also took music classes to avoid taking gym classes that required showering after, but I don't see what that really has to do with- Or a kid like me! I introduced myself to kids at my summer camp one year as Wesley, but when the school year started and some of those kids were in my new class, I actually had to explain to my friends that I had tried to take on the identity of my favorite Star Trek character. The shame haunts me to this day. I'm sure some of those Star Trek fans from your childhood grew up to have interesting and productive lives, but we ended up being podcasters. On The Greatest Discovery, you'll hear what happens to two lifelong Star Trek fans who didn't grow up to be great people, but just grew up to be people who love jokes as much as they love Trek. Season four of Star Trek Discovery is here, so listen to our new episodes every week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's take a moment for some meditation with our friend Laura House. Hi, Laura. Hello. Is there such a thing as getting, like, you want to get good at meditation, but, mm-hmm. like, how do you know if you're good at it? And if you're worrying about being good at it, aren't you then automatically not good at it? Uh, where to begin? I, um. I don't know. <laughs> I want to win. I want to I want to come in first place. <laughs> I mean, I guess one way you could meditate with a group of people and mm. at the end of it you could run around going in your face. <laughs> right. High I score. So, I I know I blissed out harder than you guys. Like you could yeah, It's like you know, snowboarding guess, or something. Yeah, I mean, you could do that. I don't know. It's a good way to stop being invited to a group. But also for sure. as, as meditators, they're supposed to be chill, so I guess they'd have to let yeah. you keep coming. So, yeah. I guess that's one way, but it's kind of an interesting as far as getting good at it. I think it's more like getting used to it. Okay. I sometimes like to think of it in opposites. So the opposite of meditation, my brain is high alert, like stress, 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 almost like if you think in terms of mantras, my mantras are like, oh, shit, 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 like left right. to my own devices, <laughs> right? Or just, just like, blah. So meditation is kind of the opposite of that. And at first, our brains, because we are wired as humans to be on alert, so biologically, but also culturally, billboards, signs, like your your news feed are all kind of stress stimulators. Right. Yes. So we're very used to that. We're extremely used to stress. So meditation can feel weird at first, yeah. to be honest. Like it can feel kind of like I've had people say, like, I feel like I'm falling, <laughs> you know, yeah. or like, what if I fall asleep? Or like it feels like a loss of control. Mm. So I think getting good at it is simply when you've done it enough that your brain is like, oh, this is 
good and safe and feels good and right. I can get there. Does that make sense? So it's yeah, a, yeah. And then you you can still feel that way and run around and yell in your face. I mean, <laughs> right. I would I would never stop you from that. No, no. I would I'd find it kind of delightful and fascinating. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll lay off the in your face part, but let's get to the uh, let's get to the quiet and centered moment here, shall we? Great. So just this just taste of meditation, but you just sit easily and comfortably. Ideally, your back is supported and you can sit up a little and your head is upright. But but you can also move. Like if you are uncomfortable, you can shift positions or if you have an itch, you can scratch it. And just close your eyes and just notice your breath. And just in an easy way, like you're not staring at it. You're not trying to concentrate. It's more like glancing at this breath that's already happening. And you'll have thoughts. And when your attention heads into your thoughts, just you become aware of that. Just notice your breath again. Just letting go. Go ahead and open your eyes slowly. Well, there we go. In your face. In your face. <laughs> I meant it so hard. In your breath. <laughs> huh? Mm, right? Mm. In your soul. Ooh. <laughs> Laura House is the uh, host, along with Annabelle Gerwich, of the Tiny Victories podcast. And uh, she joins us to uh, to connect the mind to the body because it's all part of health and minds and bodies don't function well individually <laughs> if you chop them apart with a cleaver. You need to let them work together. Laura, thank you. Thank you. Next time on Depression Mode, David Sedaris has told a lot of hilarious stories about his family over the years. David's new book is his first since his father died, and some of the stories in this book aren't all that funny. You know, I was invited to give the commencement address at Princeton. So I called my dad, because he's Ivy League struck. It's a pain in the ass to write graduation speeches, but I'll do this if you want to come with me. You know, are you kidding? I'd love to come. And then there was a luncheon with the president of the university. My father says to the president of the university, you know, you made a real mistake here. You got David. They want my daughter, Amy. She's the one who you should have here. At the end of the day, when the car came to take us to New York, I said, is that why you came with me? And he said, the woman needed to know that she could have done better. David Sedaris joins us. If people support our show, we can keep having a show because that's the way this show works. That's the way Maximum Fun works. If you are already donating, you make this show happen. And we thank you. If you haven't donated yet, don't worry. It's easy to do. Go to MaximumFun.org slash join 
and you can find a level that works for you and support our show. And that would be wonderful. Make sure to hit subscribe on this podcast. Give us five stars, write reviews. All of that helps more people know about the show and helps get more conversations about mental health going, which is the goal of the show. Please know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741-741. Hey, I wrote a book. You should read that book. You should buy that book. It's called The Hilarious World of Depression. It's a memoir. It has a lot of great stories in it. It's about mental health and life, and there are jokes. You can find it wherever you find books. Our electric mail address, depressionmode at maximumfun.org, can be employed to send us little notes, thoughts, criticisms, praise, recipes. If you're on Facebook, look at our mental health discussion group, Preshies. Join in on that. It's a great, great group. Lots of good conversations happening there. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our newsletter, Depression Mode newsletter, is available on Substack. I write that twice a week. Search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hello, credits listeners. The other day, a plane flew over our house, and my dog Maisie barked loudly at it as the plane then flew past. Then Maisie trotted very smugly back inside, proud to have chased off a 737. Maisie is misguided in the whole idea of correlation and causation, but I can't help being a little envious on her view of the world and her view of her own power. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing Hi, I'm Josh from Boise. We're all here to support and forgive each other. Will we support and forgive ourselves? Absolutely not. I'm just kidding. We're working on it. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.